there can be no reconciliation with masters as long as they are masters. No reconciliation as long as men are in prison. There can be no communication between the masters and the slaves until masters no longer exist as masters, are no longer present as masters. The Christian task is to rebel against all masters, destroying their pretensions to authority and ridiculing the symbols of power. However, it must be remembered that oppressors never take kindly to those who question their authority. They do not like thugs and bums, people who disregard their power, and they will try to silence them any way they can. But if we believe that our humanity transcends them and is not dependent upon their goodwill, then we can fight against them, even though it may mean death. Thank you. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. In this episode, we're taking time to have a special issue on the great Dr. James Hal Cohn. Dr. Cohn was an American theologian, best known for his advocacy of black theology and black liberation theology. His 1969 book, Black Theology and Black Power, provided a new way to comprehensively define the distinctiveness of theology in the black church. Cohn's work was influential from the time of the book's publication until his death on April 28, 2018. His work remains influential today. His work has been both utilized and critiqued inside and outside of the African-American theological community. Dr. Cohn was inspirational for many scholars that are around now, including myself. So this special issue, we wanted to take time out to just thank Dr. Cohn, to pay homage to Dr. Cohn, and to recognize the work that Dr. Cohn has done. This special issue delves a little bit deeper into the broader aspects and connections of what Dr. Cohn presented, not just necessarily to black theologians, but to activists, to people who are out there in the communities to people who are engaged in, 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 in an environment that is hostile these days in the Trumpster era. Dr. Cohn's work is renowned. And so I have three guests with me in this episode to talk about Dr. James Cohn. My first guest is my good friend and former colleague, Reverend Dr. Velda Love. Dr. Love currently serves as Minister for Racial Justice in the Justice and Local Church Ministries of the United Church of Christ National Office in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Love develops comprehensive curriculum, training resources, and strategies approaches for the UCC National Conferences. She engages aspects of race, gender, economic, environmental, gender bias, poverty, and mass incarceration. The goal of her work is to assist the Christian church and society to dismantle and eradicate racism by understanding the role and intent of the creation of colorism categories, the construction of whiteness, and the people of color myths. I thought it'd be 
excellent to have Dr. Love on to talk about the impact and effect of Dr. Cohn's work. Check it out. I was introduced to Cohn's work and I was actually 14. My mother was a student at Roosevelt University in Chicago and she had all of these books. Um, she was studying sociology and on the shelf was For My People. Hmm. And I picked this book up at 14 and I sat down and started reading it and I couldn't put it down. Okay. And it awakened my, my sense of that my blackness was really tied to this um, really radical Jesus um, and that liberation was tied up with being black. Okay. And so just, you know, not knowing who James Cone was, I was just very impressed with the ways in which at 14 I could absorb this. I mean, I've already been in the black church. I had already lived through the assassination of King and my whole sense of what justice meant, meant that for my people meant just that for my people, for my black people. Wow. And what, I mean, and in this day and age, I mean, I mean, man, 14, I mean, cause I, I mean, it was until grad school that I got, it was a, it was actually a, like a German uh, systematic theologian who um, introduced me to James Cone. You know, he had it in one of the readings and everything. I, I had never heard it. it wasn't until I got to graduate school. So just again, just, you know, the, the, the testament and the power of just, you know, not, not necessarily knowing heritage and knowing what, you know, what, what has been said. Um, I'm curious, just like how, how has Cone's work affected you and, and, and helped create your own theological construct to now? So, you know, with the introduction of For My People, it was really a Trinity United Church of Christ. And I was, I entered that particular church at 25 and 86 and Jeremiah A. Wright Jr. was the pastor. All right. And so that theology was already embedded in him and he shared it with the congregation. Okay. Um, the church was Afrocentric. The church was about African spirituality uh, we had a black value system. It was all about our blackness and our connectedness to Africa. And so what that did for my, my own growth was, because at that time I had not even declared that I would be going into theological education, but just getting that kind of, um, that sense of who I was as a black woman in the black church uh, grounded my curiosity um, to be in this space with intellectuals, right? Yeah. Yeah. And academicians. <laughs> and so started reading uh, James Cone um, at Trinity and had a chance to meet him um, because he was a graduate of Garrett Theological Seminary. Mm. Um, and so I went to hear him speak and bought some of his books and so got into black theology. I was reading Hopkins uh, black theology um, because he was treating Cone. That was part of his work as well. Um, I got more into Cone in, when I was a student at North Park Theological Seminary. My master's um, thesis hmm. was uh, reclaiming the spirit of God in womanist theology. Wow. wow. And it was in Cone's book um, that when he, be when he became awakened to uh, the Black women's struggle within his class, whom he had not named nor um, really identified as part of the struggle. So I read God of the Oppressed mm. Seminary, and that just set me on fire. And so I think that's what really kept me at North Park Theological Seminary because I was not interested in a white evangelical space. <laughs> right. 
or having my theology shaped in that way. But because I came out of Trinity, I was really grounded. But it was reading the admission, his own admission of not including women's voices in the liberation of Black theology. Mm. Having Dolores Cone, I mean, so Dolores Williams, um, speak to him about that. And, you know, her, her Womanist God talk book was also in my, 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 um, my repertoire of reading. And so it was just powerful to hear his admission. And I used that in my thesis as a way to say, reclaiming the spirit of God in womanist theology means that black men, black preachers, black pastors, academicians acknowledge that black women has always, black women have always been part of this struggle, theologically, church, uh, community activism organizing. And, and if it wasn't for the women, uh, <laughs> according to Teresa Brown Fry, we wouldn't have no black church. That's right. That's right. So, um, and so that really was uh, a deeper um, introspection into Cone's growth um, and, and, and his admission and just then beginning to embrace all of his black students, women students who were drawn to him uh, through his systematic theology and his black liberation theology. And now he's incorporating this womanist theology. Wow. That's powerful. I mean, and that's one of the things I have, I admired about Cone and, you know, again, you know, I, the, the brother wasn't perfect, but I did it. I mean, I love what you said, like he was able to admit while he was challenged. Cause I think nowadays there's particularly with men. I mean, I will claim it as men. There's, there's, there's very little room to admit, oh, man, I messed up on that. Or, oh, man, you know what? I should have re rethought that. And I remember a um, younger scholar uh, at the time, uh, Monica Miller, and this was, I think it was like 2009, 2010, um, at the AAR. And, uh, you know, she went in on, on Cone and was just like, yo, man, you know, like, you know, because she's like a humanist and like, and this whole idea, she's like, you know, theology is bigger than just Christian theology. And, you know, she went in on it, but Cone didn't respond. I'm thinking like, oh, man, I, let me get my popcorn because this is going to be a fireworks show. Mm -hmm. Cone's response was more like, huh, I guess I never thought about it like that. I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear more of your work. And I mean, he just his response was always, mm -hmm. I don't know. And may and. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, what was some of the interactions? You said you had a chance to meet him. Would you, you get a chance to take any of his classes or anything like that? I did not. I was, um, I started at Garrett and when I started at Garrett, you know, he was long gone. So I didn't have any of his classes. I didn't get to union. Um, so I never had a class with him, but I think the classroom came because he, he would come to Trinity. And um, so Jeremiah had everybody. And so it was also an opportunity to engage him at that level. And yes, he had grown. He had grown from, and you know, he studied Niebuhr. And I found his early works very grounded in white, um, white theologians. Yeah. And as he evolved into discovering, I mean, when he got to God of the Oppressed, it was almost like a light bulb went off uh, for him and for for his students who were following him, but again, had, still had not evolved into how he named or claimed Black women. Yes. Um, so I think what is uh, beautiful about listening to him, um, he came back for another lecture at Garrett and how he talked about the black women that stood at the cross. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and because, you know, God of the oppressed meant it was the marginalized women that understood that kind of pain. Wow. That could be at the foot of the cross to see the lynching of Jesus. Wow. And I was like, 
all right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and it's just, and so now you can just look at that theological perspective and who was standing around Michael Brown's body in Ferguson. Mm. It was okay. women. Wow. The women. So the impact uh, that Black women had in his life, on his life, and listening uh, to that very, very powerful voice made a turn. Yeah. Wow. I mean, man, you say, yeah, you say, that's, that's just it. That's the truth. I mean, you know, the women, you know, that were, that were there, that have been there, that have you know, continued to be there. I mean, you see, even I was pouring over through some, some of the old photos of Ferguson and Baltimore. And, uh, as I was getting ready for another episode and, you know, just seeing the, the sheer amount of black women that were out on the front lines, uh, you know, of that, um, maybe, I mean, I mean, for those listeners who are still kind of like, man, you know, Womanism, I mean, because you know, I have a broad range of listeners. I mean, just can you talk a little bit maybe just about what is womanism? Like what is, how do, how do you define that and how do you break that down? You you came into our doctoral class last summer and you, you shook us real real good. And that was, I was like, man, that's, that's some awesome stuff right there. But I'd love to just hear a little bit about your definition of womanism and, you know, the integration of just, you know, some of Cone's theology. Because it sounds like a lot of it, you've nuanced it and taken it and made it into your own area as well if i'm but if i'm wrong correct me no it's um and so just having had again sort of using um alice walker's definition of a womanist and um having this definition be broad about uh black women's ability to move and to love and to be who they are to be loud or be quiet or to love men and to love women and to love community and to love children. And that is African-centered for me. Mm. Mm. That's African-centered. And that African-centeredness um, from her definition and moving into how Linda Thomas then uh, does the epistemology uh, aspects of womanist theology. Okay. And, and claiming then that faith is what it is because uh, a womanist embraces the whole of who we are wow. uh, and, and the whole of community. Um, and so just taking that even further was then, well, what does that mean where we can't just start uh, here in America to look at this black liberation struggle because we've been resisting since our enslavement. And mm. so that to the studies of African-centered pedagogy and pre-colonial black Africa, who were women in those times? Okay, so here we are. We got Black Panther, right? And we're looking at these women right. who, were, who were real women, the Dahomey um, warriors. And, you know, not to romanticize any of our history, but women have been matriarchs, right. uh, the matrilineal uh, aspect of our womanism in Africa. Uh, that cradle of civilization means that we have to go further back to reclaim our history and to tell that story, that women were integral, women were uh, taking up arms against Europeans. Women have always been able to be black and beautiful. Mm. The Song of Solomon, that they, you know, Deborah was strong, an army leader, a strategist. Um, and so I think what we have to do then is open up and decolonize and deconstruct Ooh. thinking about how we view the Bible, um, how we listen to the women's voices, and then in this present moment, in these movements, how women are changing the paradigm of what it looks like to be a Black woman. 
And mm. it is not a definition of white men or black men or Latinx men. It's about women defining who they are in this moment. Um, that's powerful. Wow, that is powerful. That <laughs> you said it. Um, man, I got a couple questions. So, I mean, one decolonizing what does that mean meant for you like decolonization of that you've recommended to me a few good, good books that i've been reading and i went out and was able to purchase um and books are, books are great but what are what are some of the other processes when you talk about decolonizing deconstructing some of those things what does that what does that look like for, for you because i know you are you are on this and that's why that's why i wanted to ask you about this this is this you are on this deconstruction stuff i am i'm on the path <laughs> that's right so i was reading sort of black theology and black power last night and i read uh jacqueline grant's uh white women's uh christ black women's jesus mm. I went back to this space where cone says brothers and sisters the white man has brainwashed us black people to fasten our gaze upon a blonde haired blue-eyed jesus we're worshiping a Jesus that doesn't even look like us. Oh yes, now just think of this. The blonde haired, blue eyed white man has taught you and me to worship a white Jesus and to shout and sing and pray to this God that's his God, the white man's God. Oh man. Um, and so that's colonialism for you. Oh, oh, jeez. <laughs> that's colonialism, that is white, Ness, white skin mm. privilege, white conquerors wow. using text uh, that comes to us as a liberator and they they box it as if God was white. Wow. And so they box it in and claim themselves. It's almost as if they think of themselves as God, little G. Um, and moving through this Roman Greco cultural dynamic of trying to um, make everybody like them, right? Like 45, we're gonna make everybody white again. There you go. But decolonizing for, for me means that we are deconstructing our own narratives. We're not romanticizing our history, but we cannot think white. Um, we, we've been educated by white power structure. We have okay. been. Uh, told to assimilate if you would act like us, if you would walk like us, if you would talk like us, if you would sit in the classroom and fold your hands and think like us, you will be acceptable. Decolonization means that we are living out of our cultural context, hmm. Latinx context. That means African-centered context. It means indigenous context, First Nations people. Um, it means that we are reclaiming and educating our own uh, and also educating our children to love their blackness, mm. love their history. Mm -hmm. Who invented what? And when was civilization born? Who was part of civilization? Whose centuries are older than America's? Yes. That's colonizing. Wow. That's a powerful that's a powerful statement. I mean, I love that because I think in this era, you, you said 45. I mean, I think in this era where we're in where they have tried when I say they I talk about the administration that's in Washington right now. I talk, I think about the 80 plus percent or really the 75 percent of white evangelicals who still support seven, you know, 45 in all of his pursuits, right? If Obama had ever even, you know, glanced a page of a porn star, it would have been like, oh man, he's going to hell, he's going to burn in hell. And this, but this brother over here just doing, you know, all kind of crazy stuff and it's, and it's still okay. And so 
what is the significance and importance then of Cone's work in 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 building upon that womanism, black theology? And what is the importance of that in this this day and age for for our for our religious you know uh, imagination? Um, it, it's going to take a lot of imagination to really approach uh, a political paradigm very differently. And when I talk about uh, just having conversations with people about power structure, white folks are not about to give up power. I will mm. never be out of a job. I will always do <laughs> racial justice work and decolonizing. Right. Because, because really, it is, it's a global phenomenon. Um, and we have to think globally around liberation. Um, we have to think globally around xenophobia and immigration and migration. Um, we have to begin to think strategically that if we're going to deconstruct or decolonize or have a movement around cultural ethnic uh, peoples, then we're going to have to think about all levels. And so I think what's, what's happening is this huge fear of the decrease of, in population of white folks. And so they're holding on even tighter to yeah. the power, yeah. right? Yeah. Global power. Yeah of Europe, out of, you know, this particular country. And so I think we have to figure out a way, you know, we, we saw uh, Black Panther. What do we have to offer to the world that allows the world to see that culture can really change the dynamics of the way we use food mm. and water and airspace and materialism and militarism? Ooh, militarism. <laughs> Right, because we right. don't own land space, we don't manufacture and make the guns and the bombs. Um, so, what what kind of what kind of strategy do we come up with as as people of color mm -hmm. that we're going to really move people of consciousness, culture consciousness, into political power and wow. not destabilize and to act as if then now that we're on top, but how do we create equity? Man, man. <laughs> wow. I mean, all right. I, again, everything. I mean, this is this is this is powerful stuff. I hope this is going in a book somewhere, like somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor loves like reader. Yeah, <laughs> some, yeah. some I just need some space and time. The book is coming. The oh book. yes, Lord have mercy. I know. I mean, I I know. I feel so privileged as an educator to have the summer to take, you know, my wife's always just like, you know, she got a nine to five, you know, it's 12 months. They know, you know, hey, come May, she's, she's still looking at June. Like I still, I got all these other things to do. So I feel very privileged to, you know, to have some of that space. But I think you're absolutely right. I think in that space of decolonizing, I think in that space of trying to bring some sense of awareness, um, that struggle, I think what, and correct me if I'm wrong, or if you have a different, different position, but I think the, in 2011, what did they say? The, you know, the last white baby was born. You know, the, the numbers of white babies started to decline and ethnic minorities. I think that continual talk that, you know, in 2025 or 2030, 2040, we're going to be this ethnic minority nation and, you know, minorities are going to be this and this. I think that has also sent repercussions throughout all the places. And you said it. We don't own the legislators. We don't own the policymakers. We don't. We don't own the Supreme Court. Like we're not. We're not in the system that makes laws. And so, mm -hmm. I feel like that. There's you know, particularly with the black president, eight years of Obama, mm -hmm. there's been this backlash against all blackness mm -hmm. 
in its entirety, right? It's like, okay, we go, we going to this. It's like the, the great last hope, the white hope of of Donald Trump and and what that brings. I mean, I don't know. I know I'm just kind of rambling, but I'm just I'm curious. <laughs> have you seen some of that? Have you seen any of those engagements with that? Have have we? Have we, you know, have we put too much hope in Gen Y? Because maybe you keep talking about, oh, this next generation is going to be this. And, you know, you wait till they get into office and they're going to it's going to be a whole new day. Right. No, I, I think, you know, again, strategy means that we are thinking intergenerationally. Mm. There is wisdom in the griot storyteller. There's wisdom in the homemaker and the church past the pastors of churches. There's wisdom in young people. I think we have to also think strategically across cultures. We have to begin to talk to our First Nations brothers and sisters. We have to begin to talk to uh, immigrants and uh, you know wherever people come from, uh, Mexican or Central America, Dominican. We're going to have to break the division around culture, ethnicity, if we're going to really have um, this place of presence. I mean, we're already, mm. people are two thirds color of the world, right? But we have China, uh, we have Europe, we have Latin America, Caribbean, we have the United States. I mean, we have these structures in place. Who's going to be the bridge building? Mm -hmm. Right. And does it have to be Gen X, Gen Y, the next generation? Can it start with us? Yeah. Yeah. Can it start with us? Can it start in the classroom, in the church, in the community, at the grassroots? Um, I think it is, and and you know, part of that too is that we have to get over colorism and classism. <laughs> right, right, right. In every culture. Uh, yes. I just talked to one of my colleagues here. Um and he said it's not so much race for him. It is it's it's cult, it's it's capitalism, not capital. It's class. It okay. is a class structured system where he, that he comes out of. And so you know we've got lots of wealthy black folk. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are they conscious? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think when LeBron James had that incident happen at his home, he became conscious. Um, I think when Beyonce and Jay-Z, now they're becoming more conscious, their music is bec has become more political. Um, they have made the money, but along with that money, there's still great pockets of poverty. And so we've got the Poor People's Campaign that has resurged. Um, yeah, yeah. So yes, white folks are scared to death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're scared to death. They're scared of black wealth. Um, when black wealth becomes independent and decolonized, um, they're afraid of black numbers. And that's why mass incarceration continues to be um, one of the places to re-enslave us. Um, they're black, they're just, so there's, you know, how do we, how do we do this um, doctor? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, it's like confronting racism means fear is not an option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so just as they are afraid, we have to be unafraid and unashamed and unapologetic about moving forward as, as, a, as a human race um, or a race of people as well as a human community. Mm -hmm. you know, how do you teach people who are drunk with power that if they destroy the world, they destroy themselves? There you go. Yes. And I think some of them are looking for the destruction because they're so crazy that, you know, Jesus is coming back. 
<laughs> you ain't lying. You ain't lying about that. You know, but I think we're going to have to think again, because I, I know right now the UN has this decade, um, international decade for people of African descent, which started in 2014 to 2025. Um, and I think that's a powerful way to think politically um, and economically, as well as um, strategically about how we think about African descended people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Dr. Love, thank you so much. This is, you've given us a lot in this little <laughs> short time to think about and process as always. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Dan. <laughs> Carl Bart, I never taught a course on Bart because like people, I like people who talk and write about real concrete world where people are suffering. And unless I can feel it in my gut, I can't say it. The poor who are suffering Help me to say it because I feel their pain. The literary and activist people marching in the streets help me to say it because they talk and write about suffering with imagination and power. The poets and orators give me energy. My next guest is a regular on Profane Faith, Dr. Andre Johnson. Dr. Andre Johnson is the curator and director of the Henry McNeil Turner Project. He is also an assistant professor of communication at the University of Memphis. And Dr. Johnson is both a reverend and a local community activist in Memphis. Dr. Johnson's work stretches a long ways. Feel free to go back through the Profane Faith Archive and check out what Dr. Johnson has had to say in regards to racism, mass shootings, and of course, race and gender. It was my pleasure to have Dr. Johnson on and to have him back to talk about the work and the ministry of Dr. James Cone. Give a listen. Wow. Um, James Cone has been um, so influential in um, my entire um, public persona as it relates to me being a public theologian, uh, as well as, in many regards, as a public intellectual, but especially as a public theologian when I was introduced to him um, by Dr. Frederick Ware. He was my um, black theology professor at uh, Memphis Theological Seminary, mm -hmm. uh, and we... Um, were, uh, of course, in class studying black theology, and that's when I was first scholarly introduced to him. I had heard about him before, um, here and there, um, but did not get into, of course, um, the cone corpus, as they say, uh, until I um, got to seminary. And the very first thing that I noticed uh, about his writings and about um, the books and, and, and even the interviews. Uh, one of the things, and I tell students this all the time as well too when people ask me uh, about my seminary experience, 
I said, James Cone gave me a language hmm. um, to you to describe what I was already feeling. Okay. So when James Cone, for instance, talks about liberation, that the gospel is a gospel of liberation, I had already kind of intuitively knew that, kind of felt that, but I didn't have that language. Yeah. I didn't have that language to kind of articulate that, that I just thought Jesus as, uh, I thought Jesus as setting the captives free. And um, so when I got into Cone, he gave me the language um, to understand that. Uh, he gave me uh, the framework to do my own theological work and gave me the permission uh, because he always would tell us, uh, and you know this, that, you know, he did not write the last word on anything. He always uh, wanted others to come behind him and to continue to write, to continue to research. He always encouraged mm -hmm. us to write and to read. So uh, with that and just much, much more that I can say, um, James Cone, I was telling the church, I told the church just like this uh -huh. this past Sunday in my pastoral remarks um, as I reflected on Cone uh, from the pulpit. I just say, every, if you like anything that I do ministerially, if you think that I am a good pastor, if you think that I am a good public theologian, if you think that I am brilliant in any kind of way, if you think that I am, what else I use? I said, if you think that I am um, smart and, 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 and know stuff, especially as it relates to our faith and the faith tradition, um, you need to right now just quietly thank God for the life and legacy of James Cone mm. because he shaped who you, who you see before you on today. Right. Right. And man, and I, man, that's, that's, that's good. That, that, that'll preach right there, man. That's, <laughs> I was flowing a little bit on Sunday. I was just, I was still just, I was grieving and I was just trying to explain um, to, to, to the church, just how important um, um, James Cone really was to um, the field of theology. Mm -hmm. I mean, he literally changed the game. Yeah. I mean, we, we just kept saying that. Well, he introduced, there is a Cone school of theology now. I mean, you cannot, well, well I know certain schools still try to do it, but <laughs> to be educated theologically, you gotta drive by some James Cone. Yeah. You can't you cannot not do it. And if you're not doing it, then your school, let me just go on record, your school should re examine their entire uh, educational corpus and their existence because <laughs> That's right. you are going to talk about theology in the 20th and 21st century. And that's another thing that the brother wrote up until the point he transitioned. It's the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So, Absolutely. So that, that, whole, that whole thing, and this gets me excited, man, about what we do, about our scholarship. He saw writing and scholarship as a bona fide foundational piece of his entire ministry. Yeah. And that's how he resisted. That's what he said, that I write to resist. So up until his death, he is going to, after his death, posthumously put out a book 
that's going to be uh, that that I heard that's going to be released later on this year. That is already at the present being you know uh, uh, looked over and formatted and all. And sadly, he did, he did not get to see that book come out on this side of eternity. Yeah. But you 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 guarantee this. I'm going to get a copy and I will read it from cover to cover like I've done all his other books. Right. And he wrote until he passed on. Oh my God. That's a that's. I mean, and it's just it's just a true testament. I mean, when I first met Cone, this was like 2011, 2010. I I was. You know, I mean, you meet you you meet some of your heroes sometimes. I don't know if this is the case with you, Andre, but you know, sometimes you know, folks mm-hmm. got some little arrogance. I mean, they've been around a little bit enough. People have been and done, done told them like, oh, your <laughs> your stuff you your stuff don't stink, and so you know, you you uh you 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 walking on water. But I was taken by here is the creator, right, of black theology, of liberation theology, and. He's just humble. He's like, well, tell you know, tell me, you know, I had that voice, man. You know, well, tell me, tell me, young brother, how how you how you doing your your work, man? What how are you researching? What are you researching on, brother? <laughs> I found the same way. You know, when I finally met him, I think met him, met him, and um, and at AAR, two thousand and nine, it was in Montreal, and I had the. And, and did not understand the magnitude of it until uh, I heard about his death. And I and I had to flashback to 2009 when I really formally entered. I think he came to Memphis Theological Seminary uh, maybe before then, and we shook hands and we met, and he knew that I was working on Henry McNeil Turner, but it was like in passing. But yeah. in 2009, I had the... Uh, pleasure, the fortunate pleasure to be uh, uh, on the 40th anniversary uh, panel of his book, Black Theology and Black Power. Wow. With me, uh, Alona uh, Clay, I believe, uh, and you know, Ralph Watkins yeah. was on there with another that was on with four of us. And somehow we got on the panel. We submitted. There was a call in the Black Theology. They were going to talk about the 40th anniversary of Black Theology, Black Power. And I had been working on a piece. And it was just so fortuitous. There's so much, you know, uh, uh, I I, I always say that was just God-inspired and God-led. I was working on a piece anyway to take my notions of a prophetic persona and attach it to someone um, in the religious field, in, in, in theology, wanting to do um, this thing called rhetorical theology. <laughs> so I looked at James Cone, and I read, I was reading the book, and I said, oh, my God, James Cone is a prophet. He adopts a prophetic persona in order to get this work out, mm. because this is not traditional work in theology. Yeah. He's breaking all the conventions of theology when he wrote, Black theology, black power. And he says it up in the beginning, I'm mad. I'm writing this angry. So, you know. <laughs> right. He's a prophet. So he is throwing haymakers, black church, white church, all, all, everybody. I'm throwing haymakers. If you like it, fine. If you don't like it, then I ain't writing to you anyway. I'm writing for the street. <laughs> so, right. So I said, I said, I read the thing, and I said, okay, I can do this. I and I used my, you know, four-part rhetorical structure and talked about the prophetic persona of James Cone and the rhetorical theology of black theology. 
And they accepted the paper. They accepted it. And I presented. Cone loved it. He thought that it captured exactly how he was feeling mm. in 1969. And I have been told by both uh, faculty uh, members at Union as well as students who have since met me because I went on and, and, and thank God I went on to um, be encouraged with that paper to submitted for publication in the Journal of Black Theology. It was not only accepted, Dan, it won the 2011 Religious Communication Award wow. uh, for the top paper of the year. That's great. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with that. And as I was thinking about it, as I heard of his passing, I, I remembered what students who have since met me, like at AAR or the conventions, who said, hey, man, you're the guy that wrote the paper on Cone and about prophetic rhetoric and his prophetic persona. He teaches that paper in his classes. Man, wow. That's I didn't know I, that, man. Wow. What? Now, I knew that he, you know, he, he, he kind of appreciated it. He told me that, you know, next time uh, I saw him. In the, in, in, but to use it in his classes, to assign it. Right, right. In his classes. And he says that that is one of the best papers. I mean, one of the papers that captures, um, that captures what he was feeling and what he, and all I did was, and not really talking to him, not really knowing him. I just read the work and um, did the analysis. And man, let me tell you, it not only, um, um, the, the book itself opened me up and opened my theology up to what I'm doing even today. Um, but to then write about it and then hear about his passions and reflect back on it. Uh, I am so glad that I did take the time to do that. Um, and Cone would always be a part of me, part of my academic as well as my pastoral ministry. Wow, man, that's that's that is that's that's powerful, man. I, yeah, I had no idea, the man, that the brother was using that. That's see, that's that's a beautiful thing. And see it, but that's again, that speaks to his own, his own, right? His, his just his own mantra, his own worldview, his life, just a connection. I mean, I it just. At least by the time I met him, obviously I didn't know him in the eighties or nineties and stuff, but by the time we sounds yeah. like we met him, man, I mean, this brother was just, he just, he was realizing, man, just the impact and seeing what the future looked yeah. like, man. And that just his propheticness, man, is, is, is amazing. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. Um, now you mentioned that, um, you know, some of the schools, I know there's been some seminaries in particular, uh, that have, mm -hmm. you know, not used his stuff. There's a school even here in Chicago yeah. Uh, I, I will not name, uh, is a, a seminary that, uh, has major issues with his work so much so that it, you know, it's caused the whole divide, uh, amongst some of the faculty there. And so I'm, I'm curious, man, like what, what are your thoughts? I mean, you've mentioned it a little bit, like, man, you, you know, you recheck your whole curriculum, but I'm curious, I mean, what, what, what are we missing out with, with Cone, man? When, if we, we don't even include him. And, and here's where we, and when I, I, I have the fortune, again, to teach the, um, um, the African-American Religious uh, Personalities course that is at Memphis Theological Seminary. And traditionally, that course has been um, taught where we lift up um, figures, you know, important figures within the African-American religious tradition, um, starting back 
um, um, in the 1800s, 1700s, and working our way up. But um, this summer, I had already put in for the course, not knowing about the death of Cone, to teach the class and focus only on one person, and that person would be James Cone. Uh, I've done that before, um, and, and, and this would be my second time really delving into the works of Cone. And, and basically, here's why Cone needs to be studied. Um, and, and for those schools who do not study Cone, again, check your curriculum. Uh, because what you're doing is exactly what black study scholars were talking about, just what Cone was talking about in the 60s, that you can go your whole academic career. Think about this, brother. You could go back in the day, but when Cone was coming up and when he's writing Black Theology, Black Theology, he had to create it out of whole cloth because his whole theological education career he did not study one black figure. Mm. No figure. I, I, how do you not, as important as the black church itself has been to America and American life, how do you go your entire way and not study one black figure? Right. So here it is, 2018, and, and some schools are still, you know, doing that or selecting um, figures that they find more palatable. But here's how, forget that for a moment, but here's how you, this is why Cone is so important. This is why, number one, if you believe that theology is contextual, meaning that there is no one universal, one-size-fits-all theology, you need to thank James Cone. Mm. Number two, if you think that theology should speak to the folk that are oppressed or i.e. margins of society, if you think the gospel is a gospel of liberation, mm. if you think that, that, that the gospel is not antithetical to blackness, that in the time that Cone was writing, the mantra that that's a white man's religion was all over the place. Cone is writing against that. If you think for if you think that, that theology uh, um, needs to have some sort of an ethical component that works without faith, I mean, faith without works is really dead. And James Cone, you need to thank him because he's talking about, if you think that racism is a sin, think about all of the theology written before James Cone and written before Benjamin e. Mays and Howard Thurman and others, uh, a few others before Cone, and of course uh, King. But think about all that theology that we study and people who were in the midst of slavery, Jim and Jane Crow, all these great theologians and theological minds, and not one time did they talk about race, racism. Yeah. Because they didn't think it was a racism as a sin. This is what I tell uh, students at Memphis Theological Seminary, and they are so shocked. I say racism as a sin is a new thing. It is not old. This is just like 50 or 60 years old. Cone did that. So all this talk about reconciliation, all this talk 
that we have in our white evangelical churches about trying to understand the gospel from the point of view of those on the margins. All of this talk about all a debt to Cone, and as Stephen Ray uh, um, said in a Facebook post not too long ago, that James Cone is not only the father of black liberation theology, but liberation theology, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same theology that we applaud Pope Francis of practicing and doing when he's washing the feet and, and uh, of the prisoners and when he's talking about the poor and everybody's so shocked that the Pope is talking about the poor. That's James Cone. Man. James Cone literally changed the game with theology and gave a opening to a whole host of us. I haven't even talked about the people that came behind Cone. <laughs> because Cone opening up, Cone opens up a way for a Dan White Hodge to do a theology of hip hop because he was talking about the spiritual blues in 1972. It's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth, man. It's the truth. <laughs> so, 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 so at least, even though you got pushback, brother, Back in twenty, when you were coming out with uh, uh, theology of uh, uh, the soul of hip hop, yeah, and and you know, you, at least you had a foundation. You can at least say, as Cole said, right, <laughs> right, spiritual with the blues. That now the blues is now for this generation. It's hip hop, and here it is. I mean, that the, the foundations that we are building on today, man, Cone. Cone, cone, cone. Cone bring Martin and Malcolm together. Hmm. And yet us who were so scared of black Muslims and Muslim and Islam and all got us that oh, can we can ooh, can we study that and be, be faithful to the here's Cone showing us how we could do that. Yes. Oh my God. What? Cone, cone, cone. So when I said in a blog post, and when I got a little pushback, when I said Black Lives Matter is the gospel for our times today, uh-huh. I'm just riffing off the phone when he said the power is the gospel of the time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Man, brother, this is this is this is some powerful stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Cone set the groundwork for many of us. That's why we have womanist theology today. That's why we have uh, 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 an expansive version of liberation theology. And the people who are writing themselves into the theological tradition even today, um, um, all marginalized people, um, um, they're writing themselves in the theological tradition because Cone has paved the way. Wow. Man, brother. Well, this is uh, this is powerful. Thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, oh, your man. insight. Thank you for allowing me to share that. Oh, man, thank you for allowing me to share that. I've been wanting to. I've just been so tied up. I really want to sit down and write something uh, uh, about Cone and about um, what he really means to me and others that have come behind, um, that become behind him. 
but just it did not have the time. So when you asked me to do this little piece for the uh, podcast, I, uh, I did not hesitate at all. Um, cone really means just that much to me. I, and, and, and I am going to try um, not only to uh, continue to lift him up and his genius, uh, but I'm also going to try to um, follow in his footsteps by writing and uh, proclaiming and, 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 and challenging um, not yeah. only myself but others to, to, um, um, to reexamine, again, what it is that we say that we believe and how we're doing it. Uh, um, Cone, to his dying death, was still angry, he said. He was still angry. Um, it was a righteous anger. It was a holy anger. Yeah. Um, he wanted church to be better. He wanted the academy to be better. He wanted students to do better. And uh, I'm, I'm just trying to live. I'm just trying to live up to his expectation. And I am so glad that I got a chance to meet him. I got a chance to read him and study him. I am so honored and privileged that he taught some of my work. And um, uh, I, I just look forward to uh, what it is that we are all going to do um, together to keep um, his name um, not only alive, but relevant in the 21st century and beyond. It was trying to bring together Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement together with the Black Power Movement, this symbol of being black in a white racist society, King interpreted the gospel in such a way in which the blackness of his identity was not at the center. Malcolm, a Muslim, rejected Christianity because it did not address his blackness. So, I wanted to address my blackness, but yet at the same time, I was a Christian. I was born a Christian. I couldn't leave that. That faith was the center of my life. But the way in which that faith had been interpreted in the seminary and also generally in the dominant interpretation of it in America, which King largely adopted, also had a white Jesus. Now, how are you going to get a European white Jesus in Palestine? You can't get that. But with white theologians, you can get almost anything out of Jesus. So they had reinterpreted Jesus so he looked like them. So I wanted to bring the blackness of my identity together with the faith that I had learned in the church. And it was that that brought me to want to interpret the Christian gospel. So, in black theology, which I developed, the blackness in that phrase comes from Malcolm X. The theology in it comes from Martin King. So I bring Martin and Malcolm together, the civil rights movement and the black power movement together in order to develop a black theology of liberation. My last guest is Q Nellum. She is the CCDA conference coordinator. But more importantly, Q is an activist in the local community 
out in Denver, Colorado. I've known Q now for several years, and one thing I know about her is that she is on it. She's on it as a mom. She's on it as someone who cares about her community. She's on it as someone who cares about mass incarceration. I wanted to have Q on because she provides a pragmatic approach to understanding what Dr. Cone's work and influence has done on people like Q by the thousands that are out there in the United States. Q is able to engage with not just the scholarly realm, but also the practical realm, which is something that we need both of. Q's engagement with Dr. Cone is unique, and I thought it fitting to have her on to discuss that unique perspective. Here we go. This man, I think, has been, for me, the epitome of owning who you are, owning your skin, Mm -hmm. living in it, and actually being able to speak real with it. And I feel like James had paved the way for black people who are Christians who struggled with the, the... Christianity that was always presented to us as a white gospel hmm. and and that as we came into knowing this and I and I went through it you know I came, when I got saved I, you know it was that whole conservative yeah modest white Christianity that I was taught <laughs> right. and I and I'm being taught this by black folk and I'm thinking I'm really I'm, I'm, I was struggling with it the whole time and even when I was presented with who I was as a Christian everybody who was recommended to me was some kind of a, a white preacher or a white woman or all those people that you hear on the um Christian radio stations like those Caleb's and stuff like that. <laughs> right. That that's who that's who was presented, and I was like, okay, there's got to be something else. Where are the people that look like me, that sound like me, that come from my background, that bring a little bit of street theology into yeah. what this theology is? And I think James comes like the father, the grandfather, the patriarch of what it meant to challenge white communities in the Christian world with the realities of blacks in Christianity. And, and it was rough. I mean, he had rough conversations. I mean, to his whole theology about the crucifixion being the first lynching and challenging conversations that, that brought that he helped me really be able to start being bold because Mm. I was taught, don't be so bold, Uh, you know, especially being a woman of color and, you know, being black, I'm not allowed to speak out too loud. Um, and then, of course, I heard the typical Paul verse being thrown at me. And then um, and then I'm not allowed. And then I got to say it the right way. Because do you want to be heard <laughs> right. or do you want to be received? Oh, and yeah. there were times where I was like, you know what? I don't really care. I, I want to be <laughs> heard and received, but right. I want to be heard and received the way I am. And I tried. I Honestly, I tried it. I tried to go there. I tried um, being that everything that you could think of in a Christian world that a woman was supposed to be, I went there because that's the type of person I am. I'm going to test it. And if it don't work for me, then I'm, it's out. I'm done. Right. Yeah. And, um, I couldn't take it anymore. And I kept challenging different leaders. Like, when is it time for people like me for the bold Christianity to come forward? When is it time for people to speak truth into the realities of racism in Christianity? When is it time for, 
us to be heard in the way we need to talk about it. And I was tired of tailoring my conversations. And this man, um, man, he brought it. And he brought it, he allowed a pathway for people like me who were struggling and holding it in. And as he talked about all the time, that fire that was burning inside to get this out and mm. even reading about his life where he struggled and even was contemplating, should I be a Christian anymore? Mm. Because right. this didn't, this didn't cater to my, my black life and my black skin. And, um, I, I couldn't believe there was somebody out there like that. <laughs> right. So I was like, what the heck? You know, black people are in the Bible. Oh, okay. And <laughs> a whole new world opened up. And it, it became a struggle in my world, in my Christian world. People were like, I, I've already been known as I'm the hothead and, you know, you can't, you can't bring her to a meeting because, you know, she's going to say something crazy. And, I mean, literally I had been living that like that with my, in my leadership in the Christian world for the last several years. Wow. And, wow. and I just felt like, okay, there's got to be some space for me. And, um, and yeah, and I finally found it at places like these conferences, you know, at the Urban Youth Workers at CCBA. And I started finding people that were like-minded and I could have conversations, but yet still, there were still conversations that were still developing in, in my world and finding others who, who felt like me and they, and we could finally have a space to talk about it. It was almost like all the conversations I had to have in the shadows or the things I had to write about because I had nobody to talk to. Right. Um, I could actually start voicing it. Yeah. So, um, man, this, he, he's been the epitome of that. And, um, I love his challenge. I love, um, I loved how James Cohn went and spoke and people listened, even though he was as bold as he needed to be. And that to me, I admired that. And I was like, okay, if he can do it, I know there are other people. And then I started looking for women, women of color who are doing this. And I, and I found them on these platforms and at conferences and in in my social media mm. and looking at how people, women and men, black women and men start speaking up and speaking truth and living our truth and what it means to be Christians that we don't, I don't look like you. I don't look like the white woman right over there. You know, I look more like this and yet I'm still, God still is going to let me go to heaven too. <laughs> So I'm still going to be able to be <laughs> yeah. who I am. And I'm getting in just like you. I'm saved. You're saved. I may not reflect you the way you dress, the way you look, but my heart is still just as solid as yours, as yours claims to be as well. And Christ is still going to see me as someone who loved him and lived out my legacy here and, and put the kingdom agenda first. Yeah. So... So, yeah, this, uh, you know, there's so much to say about a man like James Cohn. <laughs> no, I mean, I and, think this is deep. I mean, because, I mean, you, you've you you've laid it out. I mean, that's and that's that's what's I think that's just the, you know, the power of his legacy. Let me but let me ask you this, though. What um, when was a turning point for you? Like, how were you introduced to, 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 to Cohn's work? And like maybe what were some of the, the, the first readings that um, that, you you know, you took in of his? Um, so for, for me, I was introduced to it when I started looking up, just kind of checking through, um, quite honestly, my husband's library <laughs> and he started having books that I was like, I never saw these books before. And, you know, you know how like the books just sit on the shelf and, um, you're, you're wondering like, wow, where, where did this, uh, where did this come from? And why mm -hmm. haven't I, I seen it sooner, but. 
I started looking at different books and he had one on black people in the Bible and, um, and others. So I started looking up all the articles and, and different authors and then found James Cone. And I said, wow, I cannot believe this and that <laughs> these books are out there and that white communities don't even embrace his authoring, his, his workmanship that he has brought to the table to have conversations. And, and then I started just reading through some of the articles and, and looking at the books online and realizing that this is someone I need to actually start looking at. And even looking at books like uh, his work on black theology and black power and, and who he is and how he tries to reconcile Malcolm X along mm. with Martin Luther King mm -hmm. to Christ and the Bible because I've always been a believer and we can, we can do all that. Like there are times we want to be that one protesting on the front lines. Right. And then there are other times where you're like, I just need to speak about this from, from the pulpit or from the stage. Yeah. Or there are times you got to write about it. And I just started looking up like what he's been doing, but that those, he just stood out and I just kept studying and I just felt like, wow, this man has made a legacy that um, I can walk in these steps. He's paved the way for, for people like me who really just think crazy sometimes. I mean, I, I'm not saying he was crazy, but yeah. I'm just saying that thought process when you think you're going crazy and nobody wants to hear what you got to say because it's just too much. And um, he said it all. And so, yeah, um, I, I just love his work on that, how he tries to tie everything together uh, with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and, 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 the, and Christianity and how it does fit and, and everything fits and the conversations are okay to have. Hmm. So That's powerful. And how have you, just in the work that you do now, how have you seen, um, well, how have you been able to, to utilize some of his theological frameworks and just some of the work that you do in the community that you're in, that you're in. So um, I had for a long time been working with youth and young adults and really working on um, raising them up as leaders of color. And um, what I started to do was implement kind of in my own curriculum because I write curriculum for um, when I have to teach and, and I started stepping outside of the box and utilizing um, without them knowing who it is, uh, the teachings and the conversations and bringing up and allowing my students to start having these conversations in a free space, in a safe space. And I started to learn about where their mindsets were at and what it meant for them to be black and be Christians and, and what that looked like in their communities and actually how they started seeing it in their own lives and in their churches growing up. And so I started taking some of that and implementing that into the curriculum that I taught to my students. And it became, um, it became something that's extremely powerful. In fact, several of my students now are working on their campuses with social justice. They, they do events and they're, they're attacking these issues now because of conversations we had when they were high school students in my classroom <laughs> Wow! and um, what that looks like for them and that they're now starting to re-examine their own Christianity. And one of my students in particular, she's a young black woman and she has been struggling 
all the time about what it looks like to be a black woman and be a Christian. And am I supposed to separate the two or is it okay for me to say that I'm a black woman and a Christian or am I just supposed mm. to say I'm a Christian? And I, and I had told her then, I said, you can be, you say it all. You're all that. And it's okay to be that. And it's okay to showcase that. It's okay to, to live it out and to be proud of that, of that. And I used to hear all the time from some of my, um, uh, leaders in the Christian world, they'd say, no, you're not, you're not black and Christian. You're just a Christian. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. I, I, who are you kidding me? Like, right. so when I look in the mirror, I'm supposed to just see a Christian right. because the Christian picture that's painted doesn't look like me. And they were just like, well, you know, that you, Christian, you are a Christian. That's who you should say you are. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to say that's who I am. You know, that's, and it just became this whole like, divide and it was like a battle every time and I said no I'm gonna own who I am and I said I'm not just a Christian I'm a black woman out here who is a Christian trying to live her life as a leader and trying to find a space at the table that all the men that I know will not allow me at the table and because I'm too bold or I'm too outspoken so I know there's going to be a space for me and I'm going to keep pushing away because I told um, this young woman I said I'm working hard to pave the way for women like you mm-hmm. to come up after me to take these spaces. So even if I never get to the table by time it's your time, there's going to be a space for you at the table. Right. Well, and I think what's so, interesting, no, I mean, this is powerful. I mean, because I think what's interesting, too, is, is that I was told the same thing. I mean, when I first started in like Young Life and, you know, some of these other evangelical organizations, yep. I was always yep. told and by other people of color. This So this wasn't like even like even yep. white folks. This is why other people of color telling me, no, 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 it's just a Christian. You know, you don't have to put black in front of it. I mean, I, my old former pastor would even was even like, I'm a Christian first mm-hmm. and then I'm black. James Cone, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah, I, that was one I heard. <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, you saying that, I was like, man, I'm just I'm resonating with that because James Cone gave me the language to really yeah. live into that and stuff. What then do you say? Because I hear this a lot um, from folks who go to seminary or you know go to graduate school looking at religious studies, and you know they've never studied James Cone. Right. I mean, what mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. and maybe just he's mentioned, but, you know, we're still learning about Eurocentric, you know, men uh, who right. who write these theological canons and stuff. I mean, what, what would be your response, you know, to that as somebody who's an activist, as somebody who's in the in the neighborhood? And, you know, you know, the dealio. Mm hmm. Um, I want uh, my, my automatic automatic response would be. Are you kidding me? Like, shame on you, <laughs> because um <laughs> You, you have to, you cannot be, I, I don't think you could be, and let me just speak from, you know, a person of color perspective. If you're a person of color and you're an activist out here, and I mean a hardcore activist or even someone who's out there saying, saying they are, and you don't know who this man is, you definitely don't have the framework and why a lot of the theologians today are having the conversations they have now, because all the conversations we're having with being black, being Christian, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., bringing the peace and yet still having action behind it really was paid. Foundation was set by James Combe. Mm. I, um, mm. I would say that if they haven't and they just discovered who he is, it is they have to be studying it. something. Look up. You can just read articles and, and get a gist for who he is. Listen to his YouTube videos when he's speaking at all these different um, seminaries. But um, 
I think for me, it really turned me away from seminary. Like I was, I went to a Christian, I got my degree at a Christian college and, um, I decided no more Christian schools for me <laughs> because <laughs> I was having yep. conversations on there where I had to teach white people about why I'm responding the way I am in my threads or on my papers. Right. And I was tired of, I just hit a point, you know, you hit that point where you just get tired of teaching them about who you are and why you're saying the things you're saying because your experience, your life plays into your Christianity. But, um, I just, I got turned away from that. And I just felt like seminary is going to be the same as any Christian college. You, you get taught the same theology and I, I need a new, I need a new theology. I need something fresh and I need something new. So yeah, I'd say for those activists out there, you better get on it and learn who this man is because especially now he's passed away. His work has, has been the foundation of these conversations. People, these organ, associations and organizations that are doing social justice and work now, yeah. honestly, if they should be giving credit to this man who started these really hard conversations at a time where, quite honestly, he could have just been shot any moment or, you know, yeah. beat down all the time just for even opening his mouth, for even being proud to be black. So... Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm curious just to in this era that we find ourselves in where there is a rising amount of white supremacy, but it's not labeled that. Right. It's like, oh, we're just looking out for white people. The same as African-Americans look out for, you know, black life. We're just trying to look out for white people. You know, the white race <laughs> is becoming less uh, of a a a you know, a powerhouse. You know, it's like, you know, they're talking about, the, you know, the uh, the birth rates of whites. You know, so it's all, I mean, we mm -hmm. all know that. You and I already know what time it is, but that's seeping yep. in. I mean, there is still a strong connection. NPR just did this this thing on, you know, uh, religion and everything, and they were talking about how in, like, 2015, you know, during the Obama era, you know, they you know they, they rated, white evangelicals rated, like, morality and decency is, like, really high. Like, a president has to have that. But then it almost switched by 2017. Well, it did switch that you know, it didn't matter as long as this person was living out the, 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 the office the duties of the office and stuff. It didn't even matter about morality and all that. So I'm curious, like mm -hmm. what is then the importance and significance of James Cones's work as you work out in this era and as others, mm -hmm. particularly people of color uh, and white allies, you know, uh, for that matter, uh, mm -hmm. work, you know, work out things, you know, in this era. Does that make sense? Sorry, I don't know. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's, uh, even as you look at his work, it, he, what he was dealing with then is actually become, it's this, it's almost like uh, history is repeating itself in my mind. Um, it may not be that we're on the streets getting hosed down or something like that, but we're getting hosed down um, politically. And we're getting we're getting hosed down and beat down in ways that continue to oppress people of color. And yet it's the people in power who are allowing this. And yeah. to me, it's actually probably more fearful now, especially as I think about my own kids growing up. Mm. I got three black boys mm. and that they're growing up in this era where it is OK to outwardly racially profile and harass people of color yeah. right now. Yeah. And people, they don't even report. I mean, you know, you, on my Twitter feed, you see the stories all the time where people don't report it. They just walk on by. Right. They, they don't help. I mean, it's bad. Like it, it's pretty much basically the new, 
I don't know if it'll be another civil rights era movement in some sort. But um, what James was talking about then and experienced then, it's actually happening now, but in a more technologically advanced society. And yet we still think that it's okay. Like, oh, well, you know, they're just going to do them. I'm sorry, I'm going to let the white supremacists hang out of there or, you know, let black people have their space. But that's just it. It's become a takeover. Black people are still not allowed to have our space. We're not allowed right. to still. We, we can't even have a black conference. You can't have um, anything we have gets taken over. Man. And it's almost like a message constantly saying, just remember to stay in your place. <laughs> and I know that sounds extremely racist, but for those who are listening that don't understand how how people of color have to think about things and how I have to um, watch how my kids act in public sometimes, or I have to tell my son that your white teacher, he's upset because he's always getting called out that white teachers still don't understand how to deal with black boys in school. Yeah. Um, Yeah. These are my conversations and this, this is a reality and it's painful and it's getting worse. And I just hope people understand that, this isn't getting better at all. It is getting worse. And as every day goes by and the people in power still have the power um, like they have, it's going to destroy and we will see a new, uh, for lack of better ways to say it, a new slavery end up on the scene in a different style. You know, just like when Michelle Alexander brought her book out, The New right. Jim Crow. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not, I mean, it's not, that's not only the new Jim Crow. We got, we got stuff happening out in public now and, and nothing, nobody gets reprimanded. Nothing's happening. And uh, luckily for social media though, that the movements that are taking place on social media are making a difference. But yet still, there are so many stories of the unheard voices of young men and women and older men and women who are still getting harassed and still dealing with this. And they, we don't even know all the stories. Right. Know all this. So right. yeah, his his work, what was happening then is happening now. If people don't don't believe it, read his stuff, look at his stories, look at the history and everything. It is happening. This is our reality. And we cannot live in a reality like this. We have to somehow make a difference, whatever that looks like. Whether you're an author, whether you're a speaker, whether you're an activist, whether you are working in an organization that that doesn't realize that we have to start educating even more so now than ever before because it's, we still got I, I mean it's going to be some time I don't even yeah. know yeah. when it'll get better so Man. yeah I think it's still relevant before I jump to that I want to get James Cohn and the others who have not spoken involved in this conversation James Cohn you're one of the brilliant minds in this country certainly on the issue of theology and faith and the black church let me just ask you whether or not you believe that fundamentally the black church has in fact become too political. Is the black church too political? Has the church gotten away from its primary mission? Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here just like everybody else. And uh, I'm also pleased that you asked me a question about whether the black church is too political. Of course, it all depends on what you mean by politics. And uh, in what way you mean that, uh, I think one of the things that we, that the black church needs to ask itself is what is its mission? What is its mission? Um, I think one of the things that the black church has lost is a good understanding of its mission. 
Black church is good at preaching, good at singing, good at uh, a lot of things, but the black church has not been as good as thinking about what its nature is and thinking about what its mission is. Is its mission primarily saving souls? Or is it saving bodies? Or is it both together? I think if you see them both together, I think you would have to see that the black church have to be political because politics is a part of life. It also has to be concerned about saving souls because uh, full meaning in life is not simply found in politics. So I would want to emphasize this particular point here is that if the black church has one problem that I think it needs to think about, it is the problem of whether it is called to save its own life, or whether it's called to lose its life for the sake of others. I feel that the black church is concerned with saving its own life because it's so interested in the gospel of success. The gospel of Jesus is not a gospel of success. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of ultimate success through failure. It's a gospel of ultimate success through obvious failure. 